For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May of 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hold, primates listening. It is I, Numator 479. According to our studies of your puny mammalian race, we discovered you like very good coffee. And while it is our evolutionary purpose to cause you psychic torment, we want you awake and vivacious to give it. So try our new blend from Spring Hill Jack Coffee, Reptilian in the Morning. Our proprietary blend of lightly roasted cocayo husks will have you immediately energized upon emerging from the pain cloaca with all your slippery new eggs. Thanks, honey. I'm cold-blooded. Mmm. Eggs to Spring Hill Jack and last podcast on the left. I'm ready to get out there and eat some babies. Get out of the way, Hillary Clinton. There's no place to escape to. This is the last podcast. On the left. (laughs) That's when the cannibalism started. Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. I don't like Thanksgiving. You're you're alone here. You're alone here. You're alone in the studio. Thanksgiving is wonderful because there's no Jesus Christ. Welcome to the last podcast on the left, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks here with glutton Henry Zabrowski. I love to sit with my family and sup. I love to sup, um, but hopefully you've already consumed your meal, all right, because we're going to talk about, I mean, after two weeks episode to go, I mean, I don't know. I'm still queen. I mean, we just recorded Necrophilia. Yeah, we did just record it. I mean, we're getting everything out of the way before the holidays come. But yeah, but yeah we did just record Necrophilia yesterday. Yeah, I just uh, can't wait. And I was like looking up. I was like, yam recipes yesterday. <laughs> and it's been like, oh, man, I just got. Then I was reading all about Harold Schechter's new book, Murderabilia, which we're going to be talking to him today in an exclusive interview. Yeah. But I forgot about the acid bath killer. Yeah, the acid bath killer is incredible. Just turning somebody into to soup. Yeah. Turned many people into soup. Did you get to read about the guy who owned the sausage factory and put his wife into the sausage mixer Mm. and they didn't find it until all the sausage had already gone out? That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone got real upset in Chicago. Sausage sausage sales plummeted. God, Uh, that must have been hard for the economy, that entire city. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, the acid bath killer. He was the one that said like, yeah, I killed him, but you ain't got no body. And got no crime. And you're like, good well, you luck. Just, you just confessed to murder. Yeah, and then murders. they found quite a bit of evidence back at his house. Like, oh, I forgot to oh. rent out that bucket. Oh, no. <laughs> and this is where an eye for detail really comes in. <laughs> um, but today, we have a very special Thanksgiving episode. We have one of our mentors. Yes. In, close to, uh, in true crime. He's here to talk with us about his new book, Murderabilia. 
and of his new project, upcoming projects, and his thoughts on why he doesn't feel shame about loving true crime. And none of you should feel shame about loving true crime. I don't feel any shame about loving true crime. No. Henry feels shame about nothing. Almost nothing. <laughs> it's more personal. It's more on the inside. Again, I saw myself getting out of the tub the other day. Yeah? yeah. Is it, you still got the frogman thing going on? Nice. Don't look good. Don't look good. But are you ready for the sultry tones of Harold Schechter? Here he is. Live from your grave. So here we are. With Harold Schechter, the patron saint of last podcast on the left. Our benefactor. <laughs> our contributor. You don't know. You are a contributor. I'm sorry. No, uh, no I, I, I'm very honored. I mean, you know, you guys have uh, kind of made me a celebrity among some group of social misfit like young people who are yes. coming to me all the time. Yeah, so I, I'm very grateful for that. So, You're welcome. Well, it's uh, our... Are, okay, so you are grateful. Good. I was good, worried good, that you were. Good, good, good. <laughs> they at least they buy books. You know what yeah. I mean? We're all they're all book readers. Everybody. What is also, I think, one of the coolest parts about our audience is that they they love the information. So they're going yeah. for it, and, and nobody does it better than you. Well, I I, I truly am moved and appreciate that. Um, that means a great deal to me. Of course. No, well, I mean, I, I mean, you were, we've talked about it before about you being a, such a huge um, influence on the podcast, because what I love about your writing is that you find this line where it's like it's lurid up to a point by but still being very respectful, you know, and that's what we're trying to figure out. Well, you know, when I st I mean, the material is so inherently sensational yeah, and sensationalistic that I felt you know, you didn't have to play that up. You just, you know, report it. You you know, understatement in a way is the best way of communicating how horrible it was, you know, just letting the facts speak for themselves without using over-the-top lurid language or whatever. So, yeah. so yes, that's a, that was a deliberate stylistic choice. But that's also one of the things that I think sets you apart from a lot of other true crime uh, writers is that you don't shy away from the detail. Uh, like you just, you give the detail as it is, uh, no matter how horrible it is, you know, especially like, you know, let's say your book on Albert Fish, like yeah. it's, you pull no punches at any point. Yeah. Well, you know, again, with Fish, you just had to quote from his letters. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, but, you know, with Fish, I mean, it was particularly important to communicate, you know, how monstrous he was. Uh, you know, I think there are many people, myself included, who do regard him as the most, again, it's hard to gauge these things, but because his, his victims were children and because he took such joy in torturing them, you know, it's hard not to think of him as possibly the most monstrous serial killer the country has produced. So. And he should be proud of that, wherever he is. <laughs> I hope he's looking down. Um, him and Beethoven and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I, I hope that they're all. I hope they're having a good time. Well, you know, not entirely sure they're on the same place, but 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 I'm sure he'd be, you know, happy to be counted as the most monstrous, uh, sadistic sex murderer uh, in our country's history. God, he'd be <laughs> jealous of new guys. Um, before we talk about your new book, Murderabilia, uh, Murderabilia, which is great, great, love this book, so good. Um, I kind of want to ask just a general question about just kind of decades spent wading through true crime. 
Yeah, because us ourselves, we're about 15 years into it. Yes. We're, we're still relative newbies when it comes to really just living in the world of true crime all the time. Yeah. How does how does it feel? Because I feel like we're watching another, which is now you have documented many times. We're mm. in a new, we were in a waxing period for true crime. And now we're mm. in a waning period for true oh, crime. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I would say, but it, it, it feels like more so it's not as red hot as yeah. it was like right. three years ago. Like, yeah, what yeah. is it? What does it do to you? Like as a, as a, as a man, like when you are researching <laughs> this material, like, and your relationships, like, do you, does it wear upon you? Like, does it like, as each cycle comes and goes watching people be super into true crime and then be like, true crime's horrible. Like, like, what do mm. you like? Kind of, how do you deal with that? Is, or are you just so deep in your own work that you yeah. don't, you know, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I haven't really paid attention, you know, to any particular cycles in terms of true crimes popularity. But, you know, as I'm sure you know from my own writings as well as other sources, you know, people have always been fascinated by true crime. I mean, there's yeah. always, you know, an audience for true crime going back probably, you know, before the invention of the Gutenberg press, uh, you know, in terms of murder ballads and stuff. Uh, you know, th- this recent... Uh, kind of, I would, wouldn't even say research, I mean, this explosion of interest in it, you know, caught me by surprise. When I first started writing True Crime, uh, I may have mentioned this to you in some earlier uh, podcast, um, you know, it was considered such a sub-literary genre. Yeah. that I couldn't persuade my publisher, Simon & Schuster at the time, to publish my Ed Gein book in hardcover. You know, because uh, even though Capote's book had come out, you know, a couple of decades before, you know, it was still, again, regarded as a subliterary thing. Um, and also the received wisdom at that time was that no one was interested in reading about old murder cases. <laughs> you know, <the> people, Incorrect. <laughs> they, whoever said that, it was very wrong. Yeah. Well, it was proved wrong. Um so uh, it, I mean more in terms of waning, I mean more just kind of cultural. Now there's more people doing the true crimes yeah. inappropriate again. Like we're heading back into the Tipper yeah. Gore times <laughs> about true crime in many ways. Yeah. Well, you know, there's always that pendulum. I mean, yeah. uh, I'm not surprised by that. Um, you know, true crime is uh, a ch- I, I think it stirs up very dangerous, fearful impulses in people. You know, part of the function of true crime is to allow us to vicariously ventilate very taboo and forbidden impulses within ourselves. You know, I'm sure I I, I must, you know, I have this anthology, uh, True Crime in American Anthology, I'm very proud of, published by the Library of America, which traces the history of true crime uh, publications really from the Puritan times, but, but, but the introduction to the book, I begin by quoting Plato and Plato says, the virtuous man is content to dream what the wicked man really does. Yeah. Jeez. And, you know, the point of that quote is, you know, that all of us possess these dark taboo forbidden unacknowledged fantasies and impulses and uh, true crime uh, allows 
civilized, law-abiding people to ventilate those things in some kind of safe, socially acceptable way. But the point is, you know, it does stir up, uh, you know, thoughts and dreams and, as I say, you know, taboo impulses that make people very, very uncomfortable. So, yeah, it's not at all surprising at some point that there's going to be a reaction against uh, the fascination with true crime. Sure. It's going to be condemned. It's going to be seen, you know, as some sign uh, of the moral decay of society. Again, that it, there, there are always going to be these moral crusaders uh, who launch these campaigns against popular forms of entertainment that, you know, really, in a way, disturb, you know, disturb something in themselves that they can't deal with. So, I like that because that's the thing. It's, it's, it's causing thoughts in your head that you can't handle. And the exactly. rest of us are over it. I mean, I got five long stem roses in my butt right now <laughs> but that's just again that's just to concentrate for the internet yeah well i think uh, it, you would have been closer to uh albert fish if you had them up your urethra i mean i'm working <laughs> fingers crossed i get there by christmas yeah. i gotta do something for my family make sure the thorns are still on there. Yeah. <laughs> so do you see uh, like any patterns throughout history as far as like when true crime wax it when it becomes more popular or when it becomes less popular or is it just sort of up to the fates you, you know i think it's always had a certain level of popularity you know again if you if you if you look at any moment in the history of Western, you know, modern Western civilization, and by modern Western civilization, you know, I'm going back to the 1700s, you know, you see this flood of true crime pamphlets every time a, a sensational murder happened, uh, you know, in our own country, uh, you know, well, you see in murderabilia, you know, I reproduce some of the, like Jesse Palm. Murray true crime pamphlets. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the early night, you know, which are illustrated with, you know, to us, they look, the illustrations look very quaint. But to an audience in 1860, you know, those would have been shockingly graphic images, you know, of uh, Jesse Palmer slitting this little girl's throat. Uh, you know, in the 1930s and 1940s, the newsstands of America were packed with all these true detective magazines, you know, which ran very, very lurid and graphic stories. So there's always been that, you know, it's a little, you know, it's a little, what's happened over the last few years with this great explosion of interest in true crime is kind of an anomalous in a, you know, in a sense, I, I can't remember any particular period, you know, where it's captured the public's attention to that extent. Yeah. It's entered the mainstream, like fully entered, like Ryan Murphy, you know what I mean? Showrunners of like big time television yeah. shows that are obsessed with true crime. I go into meetings. This is real. Or like I'll have meetings with like big time producers and they're all like, tell me more about what Jeffrey Dahmer did. Yeah. And I was being like, this was used to get me kicked out of meetings. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think part of it's just technological, you know, uh, you know, that, that the means of transmitting these stories now. Uh, has changed so much, and it's much easier for people uh, to feed their appetite for this kind of material, and and even to acknowledge their appetite for it, you know, without being made to feel ashamed. Uh, so again, you know, as you're we're kind of talking about, I mean, the guilt 
eventually does come up. So, uh, uh, you know, weak the, people, yeah. people who don't get it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what it could be. I just realized is that you you say the technological aspect of it. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that a lot of true crime content you used to have to read to get it. Yeah. <laughs> and now you, you don't. Go, yeah, you have to find the books. Yeah, you have to find the books and you'd have to actually sit down and read an entire book. But you Is know. this about Zoomers? <laughs> Are we about to talk about quiet quitting? And you had to buy the books. Yes. For them. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, to my mind, I could be totally wrong. What, what set the whole true crime craze off was the podcast serial yeah and then at the same time you know that show jinx about a durst i mean that was just lightning in a bottle yeah but i mean serial you know because it was so respectable oh i have very mixed feelings about eric larson's devil in the white city as i'm sure you know you yeah, know, part yeah, yeah. Of, you know drew very heavily on my own but but the way i always thought of that book was that he made true serial killer stuff safe for women's book clubs. Yeah. No, because, you know, because embedding the home story in the story about the building of the Chicago World's Fair, you know, you could read about H.H. Holmes while feeling you are learning something cultural. Sure. Something safe. You're learning something cultural, but on this other, you know, on this other level, Again, you're getting to you're getting to you know uh, uh, feed you know the the philosopher William James talks about the carnivore within yeah the carnivore within you're getting to throw a piece of red meat to the carnivore within without even knowing you know that it's there so yeah I've seen a lot of ladies <laughs> express it <laughs> um, but no but I will say that's kind of why you know it is both who we are as people, but it's also a part of our show, which is we understand what's like, we used to joke about how you have to get through the jokes to get to our information. Yeah. Like you have to handle like we're ghouls yeah. and the proper tradition, I think mm -hmm. of true crime is just both being deadly serious about the information, but also kind of reveling a little bit and understanding that this is naughty and we are that it's kind of where it kind of, it should in many ways kind of remain. Like it should be a, not in the center of the pipe of entertainment. It's probably best if it's a little bit on the fringe. Yeah, but I think entertainment is the key word. You know, people are reluctant to admit, you know, that uh, true crime, you know, watching, you know, the Jeffrey Dahmer miniseries or whatever is, is a kind of entertainment. You know, you ask people why they do it, you know, and they rationalize their answers. Well, I'm interested in learning about, you know, abnormal psychology, blah, blah, blah. You know, what they're not willing to admit, you know, is that they're enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You like it. You just kind of yeah, like that, it. Yeah. That's entertaining. You, there used to be a zine. I don't know if you're aware of it. You know, I don't know if you remember. I mean, now there are all these e zines, but back in the day. Oh, you know, I remember. Zines. I remember zines. Yeah. So there was one called Murder It. Murder can be fun. Murder can be murder. fun. I loved murder can be fun. I used to buy yeah. it in, at Desert Island, Brooklyn. It's it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know the uh, the title kind of says it all. <laughs> People. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's us. That's what we do. Um, yeah. But that actually probably brings us to murderabilia, where like yeah. I uh, think that you somehow, in an academic sense, still mm. nail that tone. You nail mm. that. This is it's. 
where we are fascinated by this and it is okay mm-hmm. to be fascinated by this. And mm-hmm. the way you break it down, because, you know, the run up of the book is it's a history of true crime in objects. A hundred objects. And I love this. I love this concept yeah. of boiling it down to these kind of like famous totems mm-hmm. that uh, that represent massive stories. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so did you, when you were writing this book, did you start with the story or start with the object for each one? Um, kind of with the objects. I mean, you know, I obviously, if you're writing a history of crime, you know, there are certain crimes you feel you have to cover. I mean, there were certain crimes I wanted to cover that I couldn't find any suitable objects to, uh, you know, and I didn't want to, you know, have every object be you know, this is the weapon that so-and-so used, and this is the weapon so-and-so used. You know, I was looking for a variety of interesting objects. Um, so, yes, in many cases, uh, it, it was, you know, finding what I thought was an intriguing and interesting object connected to the crime that led me to focus on that particular crime. So. The footstool with the Lindbergh baby was really interesting. I also did not know that the well, the latter with the Lindbergh baby was really interesting. I but like I did not understand. I don't know as much about the case as I wanted to. Yeah. I didn't fully understand that there was discrepancy over the guy that they they named as the killer of the baby. I did not know that. You know, it's a lot there's always been a lot of controversy over whether Bruno Richard Houtman, you know, was actually the Lindbergh baby kidnapper. I mean, you know, I I feel pretty sure he was. And, you know, I think the weight of evidence uh, indicates that he was. But yeah, but I mean, there have been people, you know, who've written books arguing, you know, pointing to other suspects. But but the latter was one of the key pieces of evidence against him. You know, he made he was a carpenter. He made this homemade ladder, which he used to snatch the baby, you know, from the second story uh, room, um, nursery room in New Jersey. And, and technically then, that's like a Looney Tunes tactic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like Wiley Coyote. Yeah. Well, you know, he did it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, he, uh, you know, and he, he almost kind of got away with it, but, um, yes, but, but it was these wood experts who were able to match the wood from the ladder to these missing boards in Houtman's attic, you know, that, you know, helped help convict him. So I did appreciate in your book how you put wood experts in quotations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it just sounds like yeah, a lumberjack shows up in like, I know wood. <laughs> like, oh, great. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, again, some controversy surrounds it. But, uh, you know, that's a very, very famous piece of murderabilia. I should say, by the way, Again, I do in the book uh, the term murderabilia coined by a, a gentleman named Andy Kahan, um, who, who works uh, for, for a victims unit in Houston. I, I was actually on John Walsh years ago uh, of America's Most Wanted, briefly had a daytime talk show, and I was invited to be on with Andy Kahan on this subject. Andy, by the way, coined the term. I mean, he's 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 violently against, uh, you know, anything having to do with murderers profiting, you know, justified from their from their infamy, you know, by selling things and so on. You know, I was there to point out, as I do in my book, you know, that it's not at all a modern phenomenon, you know, that, uh, 
you know, people every time in the past, and again, going back at least to the 1700s, that, a, you know, a horrible, sensational murder happened, hordes of people would flock to the site and want to come away with some sort of morbid souvenir. I always think of the Belgunna site yeah, when I think about that. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Belgunna site, I mean, the Sunday after her murder farm, um, you know, the, the, you know the, the bodies on her murder farm, the dismembered lonely Norwegian bachelors uh, <laughs> that she lured to the site. Uh, God, she must have been something in the sack. <laughs> I think about that, like, about because she kept these men were thirsty for her and she was built like an offensive line. OK, first of all, I have to say that. Um, so one of the Amazon reviews. So, you know, my book, I describe her, you know, she was. Yeah, you know, she was 200 foot. Anyway, one of yeah, the. She's, yeah, she a lot of lady. Yeah. Anyway, one of the reviews said I was fat phobic. Oh, you know, it's just it's if you're if we're gonna f- talk about it with anybody, at least yeah. do it with the serial killer. <laughs> I think we um, can talk. It's not yeah. Oprah, you know. But um, yeah, but thousands of people. I mean, they were running, you know, special trains from Chicago, you know, for all the sightseers. Thousands of people. There are there are postcards. You know, they put the de- decaying remains of her victims initially in a little outbuilding on the farm. And there are photographs of hundreds of people, men, women, and children. You know, it looks like the line outside the Pirates of the Caribbean or something, you know, just lining up so they could walk past and and see these, uh, you know, decomposing remains. And, you know, that's funny. Like, I have noticed that in a fair amount of story, like, because we've been going a little bit more historical with true crime lately. And I've been noticing that showing up a fair amount. That showed up. We uh, just did the Madame LaLaurie story uh, down in New Orleans. Uh, right. And they did the same thing where they yeah. would display. Well, that, was at a, but that was also at a protest. too. Yeah. But they, but in the same, you know, I, I guess nature's like they would display the dead bodies for people to come and look at. Like yeah. almost as if it was the public's right to see these things. Well, back in the old West, as I'm sure you probably know, you know, they would put the corpses of uh, put the corpses of outlaws that had been captured or killed on display that had been hanged or, you know, shot to death. You know that it, the Clint Eastwood movie, uh, Unforgiven, yeah. which you know the end. You know when when he rides into town, he sees Morgan Freeman's body on display, and that sets off his last rampage. You know, but that was very, very typical in uh, in in the old west. And sometimes, you know, they would put body parts on display. And you know, I think I say in my book, in nineteenth century dime museums, there was a famous one in New York called the Museum of Anatomy. They would put, you know, the New York one had uh, the preserved arm of Anton Probst you know, one of the most horrific mass murderers of the 19th century, you know, on display in this dime museum. And they would advertise it in the newspapers as a big draw. So That's why I always disagreed when Charles Manson freaked out towards the end of his life when he had that was star, right? They had that yeah. girl move in who was trying to kind of move in on his game. And then he found out that she was just angling to get his body to take it on tour after <laughs> right. his death. And honestly, I was like, that would have been... Awesome. Yeah. I would have paid money to go see Charles Manson on tour. Charles Manson live. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just have a couple, you know, slash 
comes out, plays a couple. <laughs> so, I mean, like, you know, and you pop up the bit. I'm like, to be honest, if you're a serial killer, what more would you want? Yeah. So, so, so you would advertise it as Charles Manson live? Live. <laughs> But, and then he's dead. You put into parentheses, like you know, like like right now he's dead. Live from your grave. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint. You can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text. And that helps you save time. I know I'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with horse pics. Now, part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents' accounts. Now, so what I've done to do is like, so while I'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse pics over various country borders, I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It says here I have to talk about something I need to get off my chest. and. I guess I can share it here. I, I eat mayonnaise for fun. It's a hobby of mine. And it's an addiction. And it's a daily weight on my life. How much I need whipped egg whites and oil crammed into my veins. As soon as I wake up. And a lot of people carry around a lot of different stressors, big and small. Some people are presidents. Some people are soldiers. Some people have to eat mayonnaise, especially with hard-boiled eggs, which is what I eat for lunch. But I guess I should share that in therapy. Because therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And what I do is I just add eggs if I have mayonnaise left over. I just continue to add the eggs. But if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I hope they can help me. My God, I hope they can help me. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LastPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash LastPod. Hi, did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. That's one of my favorite things about it. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. 
Now, personally, I'm in the middle of re-landscaping my yard. I like to do it myself because I called up a landscaper to see how much it costs, and it was absolutely insane. Plus, I love dirt. I love getting my hands in the dirt, and I love planting things myself. And fast-growing trees has given me some wonderful plants that I can use. Like, I got this uh, Texas sage. It's purple. I've dug up a whole bunch of horrible bushes and shrubs up in front of my window and in front of my house and put some purple Texas sage up there, and it's going to thrive, and it's going to look real good. And I don't even have to go to a nursery to buy it. It came to my house. Now, this spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code LEFT at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code LEFT at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code LEFT. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Um, How can I even ask, like, how do you feel about just kind of murderabilia in general now. Like, I've never purchased a piece of murderabilia. Neither have I. I've never spent money. Most of the stuff I've gotten, you know, I have a Gacy drawing. I have some stuff from Charles Ng. I have some stuff from Ted Bundy. I have some stuff just, you know, from... Okay. and But it's kind of just showed up at my house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, you don't really know where it comes from. Like, I've got a drawing from Richard Ramirez. Uh, I've got one. I've got a letter from BTK. Yeah. Again... I didn't pay for any of this stuff that just ended up in my possession. What do you have? What do I have? Well, um, one of the things I have uh, that's in the book, that's actually kind of a treasured possession of mine, is uh, this beautiful hand-carved wooden box that had been made by Robert Irwin, uh, the mad sculptor. So, you know, I wrote a book about him called The Mad Sculptor. Irwin uh, was a very talented artist, totally crazy. Uh, who committed this very, very sensational uh, triple murder in New York City um, in 1937, Easter Sunday, 1937. Um, And he was in and out of mental institutions. And when he was incarcerated in them, he would make a little money for the hospital canteen by either sculpting uh, busts of the doctors and nurses and attendants and selling them for a few dollars. Or in this case, he carved this beautiful wooden box. You know, he made the box, he carved it. And each side of the box and lid of the box is decorated with a bas-relief carving of this naked woman who was uh, this young model named Ronnie Gideon, who was one of the victims he killed. Jesus. Whoa. After my book came out, uh, this uh, very sweet woman from down south uh, contacted me and said, you know, my husband was a guard at one of the mental institutions that uh, Irwin was an inmate uh, in, uh, and he bought this box from him. And he, her husband was deceased. Uh, mm. she, you know, I think he'd want you to have it. So I you know, offered to purchase it from her and flew her to New York and, uh, you know, have this box, which is, you know, really quite an amazing piece of artwork, actually. So do um, you use it? Do I is use there it stuff in it? Uh, the only thing that's in it is the original letter she sent me uh, describing uh, what it was. But no, I do not use it. Uh, you know, it's an objet d'art. As the yeah. <laughs> um, 
So uh, I'm trying to think, you know, I have a couple of other things. I have uh, a, a watercolor that somebody gave me from Lawrence Bittiger, I think. Um, I have, oh, I, I also acquired actually in doing my book, uh, a, an inscribed hymnal from the former son of Sam who is now, I think, calling himself the son of light. Yeah, this, uh, yeah, the, the son, son of, of light. Ho- the son of hope. Uh, he wished that we could be, ah, he won't talk about, because I wanted to get in contact with David Berkowitz, but he only will talk about Jesus Christ. Yeah. 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 Um, and he did, a, we, I do have a, uh, a book that is a lot of his um, poetry that he's written it's over the years. Uh, and it does have a fair amount of Christian poetry, but then there's other poems, like there was one poem, just it's just called The F Train, and it's about how much he doesn't like the F train. The F train. It never works. How am I supposed to get to work? Like, yeah, he was one of the worst. He is the worst. I take the F train all the time. Um, <laughs> so um, Breaks the headlines. Harold Schechter is pro F train. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there is something, you know, as I say in the introduction to the book, you know, I've always been fascinated about you know, the kind of power that emanates, you know, from these items, you know, and why people are so drawn to them and why people want to have them in their households. You know, again, I, I see them as the shadow side of saints' relics, you know, just as some sort of divinity inheres uh, to a saint's relic, to a piece of bone or whatever of a saint. There's some, you know, there's some... Uh, a dark quality of of evil that we're drawn to. In, in fact, I, I've come to think, okay, I'm going to run this by you. You're the first people I've spoken to about this. I, I've come to think that a lot of the fascination with serial murders and true crime, there's, there's a weird quasi-religious quality to it. I, I can see it. I can, yes, if you want to speak on, I can respond. Yeah, but let me just say, you know, one of the central issues of theology uh, in in a letter, I don't want to, I don't want to get too pedantic, but, but in a letter to his father, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, you know, said in Latin, unde malum, whence evil? You know, where does evil come from? You know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a mystery you know, that religion has always grappled with and essential to religion. And, you know, I think somehow people are partly drawn, you know, to these true crime documentaries and podcasts, you know, because it confronts you with that age old question, you know, of the nature of evil, you know, the, the source of evil, the existence of evil. So, you know, there, there's something about that in, in, in owning a piece of murderabilia. And I also think there's some primitive thing going on you know, it's like, you know, evil fighting evil, you know, like people who wear the evil eye or something, you know, all these superstitions that if you carry around some token of evil, it will ward off other evil. Anyway, I mean, those are just, you know, theories that I've been playing around with. I wonder if they people view, quote unquote, holy good people, uh-huh. saints. I love, I love this connection of murderabilia to like, saints like objects religious objects because i think that there's on one hand if you believe in god like if you believe in that this idea that there's some pure good in this world a saint 
is someone that knows something about that world that we'll mm -hmm. never know. They mm -hmm. have some form of intimate knowledge of mm -hmm. this purity of God that mm -hmm. we are, or people who want that, are desperately chasing and looking for and also just kind of curious about, like, thing in general. I mean, like, how do you go, like, because a lot of them started as people, just normal people. How did they become a saint? How did you become this other thing that was became like deified in a way? You got you got touched by mm. this 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 energy, and you have there's connection to it. I think that there's a on the other side there's a transgressive version of that, mm -hmm. which is those guys. As much as you want, as much as we, I mean, we make fun of them as losers, and they are, and it's and it's again, we do believe that serial killing essentially is also born of an extreme mediocrity. It's because you're not good at really anything else. You can choose this other thing that then mm -hmm. you can get an instant name for yourself by destroying a bunch of people's lives. But I yeah. think there's something in that that they have crossed over to a world that we will never see. Mm -hmm. You know, like they have done thing. They have done the most taboo. They have they've stepped into the, an extreme taboo. And, and the thing in some ways, there's a curiosity mm -hmm. about, yes, like whence evil, right? Like yeah. what made you go do that? But also like, there is something about you that means there's something inside. There's something, there's an experience that you had mm. that I will never understand. Well, mm. it may also be a case of like, or it's, see. it's a lot easier to touch the devil than it is to touch God. He's there. He's wanting, he's looking, his pants are down. And if you're wanting yeah. to get into something that, you know, supernatural or something extranormal or anything like that, something religious, then, you know, if you believe in God, therefore you must believe in the devil. And yeah. it's a lot easier to yeah. touch someone who's touched bad. It's much easier to do bad than good. I think about Gacy and I think about guys that are like true villains of American history, right? Like not just like low, like murderers or mass murderers, but like those guys that are like, we now, you know, John Wayne Gacy, I, upon rewatching his stuff, there was like, I had a re-interest in him not, not that long ago. And he was a guy that uh, I believe was probably one of the worst predators mm -hmm. that ever walked the face of the planet. Yeah, I agree. But there's something about, like, what was it like in mm -hmm. that rumpus room on a Wednesday between these murders where you're walking on top of this pile of the own your own bodies that you have created that are in your home? You mm -hmm. got the fucking pogo costume, the pogo costume, hanging in a closet. You know what I mean? Like, this guy has become, it's a demon kind of mm -hmm. walking the earth. In a yeah. way. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about something that that guy touched. Mm -hmm. that then now you're like, oh, wow, this is this is this is imbued with something. And I don't know whether I like it or not, but I'm right. endlessly fascinated by it. Well, right. a lot of it, you know, being like, you know, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be in that place. But like, holy shit, what would that be like? Yeah, 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 absolutely. By the way, speaking of murder, Billy and Gacy, um, I uh, know somebody uh, who actually showed me this, who owns. Uh, and it's signed by him, John Wayne Gacy's Bob Ross Learn How to Paint Kit. <laughs> <laughs> well, he also had what's his butts. He had guys working for him. He had guys doing the paintings for him. He had other guys like he had everybody. There was like an assembly line. I went to a, a showing of a bunch of his art and they uh -huh. just showed like he did a whole series of the seven dwarves. Yeah, but they yeah. were all just paint by number sets right. and he just sign them and then ship them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, uh, you know, uh, apparently Bob Ross was a big influence on his artistic <laughs> development. Love to see that conversation. <laughs> yeah. So this is like religious element. Is this sort of a, is this an outcropping of like kind of the new revelations that you had when you revisited 
Ed Gein for, uh, have you heard yeah. what Eddie Gein done? Yeah. I mean, I felt, uh, you know, there's such, it's so inexplicable, you know, phenomenon like Ed Gein. Um, but I mean, what I came to believe is that all the psychic pressures that were brought to bear on him opened up some kind of fissure, you know, in his deep psyche. And all of this ar- weird, archaic stuff just came pouring out. And he was enacting, you know, these kinds of, uh, you know, very, very, very uh, atavistic rituals uh, of human sacrifice and, again, flaying human skin and so on and so forth. You know, it's one of the sources, I think, of the fascination that surrounds Keen, you know, because you have, you know, there's a guy living in 1950s, you know, um, it, the American heartland in the 1950s, you know, the rest of us are there watching Leave it to Beaver on TV, so on and so forth. And he's in this little remote farmhouse acting out, you know, these very bizarre, you know, very bizarre rituals, which would have been, again, familiar to Aztec priests and stuff. So, so you know, there, you know, there, there is some element of that. Um, and, uh, you know, given the materialistic society we live in, you know, the very secular society we lived in, you know, still on some level, you know, we believe in these cosmic forces of, you know, love versus evil, you know, that are always at war with each other. And, uh, you know, as you were saying, you know, there are on the one hand, the saints relics, which resonate with this quality of self-sacrifice and utter selflessness and you know love and then the shadow side of that this murderabilia stuff um which resonates with all this satanic meaning it's cool it's incredible it's pretty cool (laughs) from your grave ah jules oh jules Make a wife smile today. The road to getting engaged can be long and full of memories and pitfalls and landmines. Or it can be short and thrilling, like a roller coaster on the way to the police department. But the road to finding the perfect engagement ring is a straightforward path every time. All you've got to do is head over to BlueNile.com and they're going to ship them rocks straight to your wife's new fingers. On BlueNile.com, you can create a bigger, more brilliant piece than you can imagine. At a price you won't find at a traditional jeweler, Blue Nile is the original online jeweler since 1999. That's present time to me. Their diamond price guarantee means that in most cases, they can meet or beat a competitor's price on a comparable diamond. I know when I got my wife a beautiful Blue Nile necklace, the first thing she did was, what did you do? But afterwards, she was so happy to have it and she loved it and she wore it when we went on vacation and modern did everybody come around being like where'd you get that piece you beautiful woman and i was like stop talking to my wife she's spoken for you can see it with the blue nile bling she's got on her right now get 50 dollars off your purchase of 500 or more with code last podcast at blue nile.com that's 50 dollars off with code last podcast at blue nile.com blue nile.com 
How many platforms do I work on? So many platforms. Can you believe it? Google Docs. Work on that. Very complicated. Lots of different things going out. Clickety-clack, right? Slack. Saying things to my employees. All of my, all my, my main doldgers walking around here. It makes sure it changes cluck to the word I meant for it to say to everyone. But I try to say not curse words on Slack. What am I supposed to do about it? But Grammarly doesn't fix curse words, does it? Because Grammarly's too good for it. It's too classy. It's Grammarly is an AI writing partner that helps you get work done faster with high quality writing. Because better writing means a stronger impact. The pen is mightier than the sword. Except when the sword is in the room. 96% of Grammarly users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing and suggestions based on your audience goals and context. Can you believe it? And data privacy and security are woven into the foundation of Grammarly. It's in its goods. All right. So Grammarly's great. Use it. I use it. I love its gentle harassment of my writing style because it does help me because sometimes my thumbs are faster than my eyeballs. Don't quote me on that. Get AI writing support that works where you work. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors. It's a waste. Don't waste hours on apps. Besides appetizers, that's the kind of apps I like. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Did you know that empanada is already Spanish? I didn't. Thanks, Babbel. Did you know that burrito is already Spanish? Wow. I just got to learn all the rest. And eventually, I'm going to be eating downtown Mexico. Thanks, Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash left. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash left, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash L-E-F-T. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now that we've arrived on the subject of Ed Gein once sure. more, yeah. uh, like we were both on a new MGM Plus documentary series about Ed Gein, uh, cool. In which we all got to hear Ed Gein's voice for the very first time. Yeah. Uh, among the first people on earth to hear Ed Gein's voice, you know, since he died. What did you, what was your first thought upon hearing Ed Gein's voice? Like after spending, arguably, you are the Ed Gein expert amongst yeah. experts. You know more about him than anyone. You've spent more time with him than anyone. Like, right. how did you feel upon hearing that voice? What did you think? Well, when he first heard it, you know, he just sounded like a regular guy. Yeah. That's the thing. <laughs> That's you know, what's weird, man. He, he sounds like he's just, oh, yeah, you know. You know it's like, it's just, just like, ooh. For some reason, um, you know, for various reasons, uh, you know, uh, partly because in my researches, uh, reading about people who knew him, uh, you know, he, he was always, I, I had the impression of him as being a little, um, I don't know if, this is still, you know, an acceptable word. Do people use the word effeminate anymore? But effeminate. Yeah. No, I mean, off. I don't know. But yeah, he does. You, He was, you yeah. know, yeah. But, but you know, but so I was almost expecting to hear that a little in his voice. Um, but yeah, there was none of that. He was just like this regular 
farmer guy. No, you know what? I, I, I had a regular a lot- rural American, like not even a Wisconsin accent. That's what was weird to me is that you just had this regular. Yep, I just went on and I found her and uh, <laughs> I did it, yeah. and that was just uh, I did it. I actually wonder <laughs> if it's a part of his because, like these guys, right? They all kind of have some of these guys have cloaking mechanisms. You know, mm. like they have these things where you know. They have families, so they have, you know, and they, you see, look, no, I'm normal. You know, I got this other stuff going on. Well, I wonder mm. if that's just his way. It's like how I'm trying to learn how to, I'm trying to learn about football so I could talk to men, mm. right? Because I got nothing to talk about except aliens and serial killers. So I'm learning to try to, I use football. I'll go like, ah, you know, the Cowboys, huh? And that works. Where I wonder if Ed Gein affected more of a, yeah, well, yeah tougher you know, accent. Yeah, I don't I don't think it was an affectation. I mean, you know, I think, you know, when he wasn't robbing graves, graves and dissecting corpses and dressing up in, you know, flayed skin and so on, you know, he was leading, you know, this kind of regular Plainfield, Wisconsin life. So. I'm just a regular guy, just like <laughs> you. Let me feel your sides. Let me just see. Oh yeah, let me show it. Uh, what's your waist? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, but he, otherwise, he's just a, a regular guy. Yeah, no, yeah. You know, obviously, none of his neighbors. Uh, well, of course, you couldn't really imagine anything. That's the thing is that when you're in the, he's in the Willy Wonka chocolate factory. You know what I mean? <laughs> no one knows what's going on in there, and the Oompa Loompas are afraid. Yeah. Well, you know, people would sometimes ask me, you know, didn't some of his neighbors suspect? But, you know, I mean, who would suspect what? (laughs) (laughs) He's grave robbing. He's wearing human skin. He's dancing in a field like they probably would lock you up. Yeah. Yeah. Or even suggesting it. There was a great, uh, you know, the uh, satirical newspaper, The Onion. Yeah. So they had this great headline years ago. Uh, neighbor said she always suspected that the man living next door was a serial killer. And she, you know, I think it was those nurses he was burying in his backyard. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but if you don't, you know, if you don't actually see that, you don't suspect. And, and again, it would be unimaginable for anybody to suspect the kinds of thing Ed Gein was doing. So, Of course. Yeah, because he was just inventing stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I think of him as a little bit of an outsider artist. Oh, yeah. very much so. Very outside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a solar system artist. Yes. Um, no, but, you know, Gein, again, is endlessly fascinating. And uh, as you see in Murderabilia, uh, a friend of mine uh, came into possession of Augusta Gein's crucifix. I saw that. I was going to ask you where that came from. Yeah, he actually wrote me. I'm not sure how it happened. Uh, He was uh, puzzled because apparently uh, we reproduced the flip side of the crucifix. But in any case, uh, where that came from was that Gein formed a friendship an epistolary friendship. They, you know, just wrote letters to each other with some guy when he was in last men's, the institution that he was in until his death. They became very, very close pen pals. And at some point, Gein sent him as a gift Augustus crucifix uh, with a little card. 
Uh, I don't quite remember how my friend came into possession of it, but he purchased it from this other person. And he has Augustus crucifix and and the card, uh, Ed Gein's card that you know that it that it, that accompanied it. So, God, I wonder God. what his signature was like. I just see it as like Ed, <laughs> like just in block letters. No, no. I mean, I, I've seen uh, I've seen cards from him. You know, he had perfectly normal handwriting. You know, he was. That's kind of disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he was. You know, he, he he was not a stupid man, Gene. You know, people saw him as a simple-minded kind of village idiot. Um, but, you know, when he was incarcerated, you know, he apparently read pretty widely. He, from what I know uh, from some people who interviewed him, uh, he even read some Freud. Uh, with, and he was very interesting. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh my god! <laughs> like the first, what? Oh no! Yeah. Well, he was very dismissive of Freud's theory. I imagine. <laughs> I imagine. He's like, that doesn't track for me. Now, that, that, that complex stuff has nothing to do with me. So. <laughs> well, in in murderabilia, like one of the things I really appreciate about it is that, like, it's not. I kind of get the feeling from it. It's, it's not just a history of true crime, but it's also like kind of a cultural history uh, mm-hmm. of like how people process true crime. The, the thing that I found most interesting, like the most, the objects that I found most fascinating uh, weren't really the murder ballads uh, because I, of course I know a lot about murder ballads and it's great that those are included in there, but mm-hmm. the kidnapping songs yeah, were yeah. bizarre. That's interesting. Like, yeah. Tell me a little bit about those. Like those, those were fascinating. Um, well, the one I remember most, and again, as I think I said, uh, before we started, as soon as I write a book, I forget everything that's in it, but remember (laughs) that I do, uh, uh, include this little Charlie Ross, uh, sheet music. I think it was called, the song was called something like, I want to see mama again. (laughs) Yeah. It's bizarre. (laughs) It's called, yeah. Bring back our darling. Was that, was that the Charlie Ross one? Uh, Yeah. Wasn't there one like I want to see Mama again or or something? But there anyway, was a couple of them. Yeah. It's the Fox. Oh yeah, well that. But but Charlie Ross was the first child who was kidnapped for ransom uh, in the United States, and uh, you know the case became a big sensation. But you know, as you say, I mean, it says something about the culture of the time, uh, and it's um, you know love of these highly sentimental, you know, this highly sentimental poetry and music and so on and so forth, you know, that they turned this thing into a piece of sheet music. So you could, you know, take this music home and sit in your parlor and entertain family and friends (laughs) singing this heart tugging song you know, about this little missing kidnapped boy. But, you know, what you're saying is one of the things that you know, it was always, you know, I regard myself as a true crime historian. And one of the things I feel very strongly is you can learn a tremendous amount about any period in the culture by seeing which particular crimes, you know, the public is fascinated and obsessed by at that moment. You know, for example, you know, one of the books I wrote was about the Bath School disaster of 1929. Um, where this 
guy, you know, farmer named Andrew Kehoe, you know, blew up uh, the town public school and killed 38 children and teachers and so on and so forth. I think we called him on the show the biggest asshole of the century. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, remains the worst school massacre in U.S. history. At the same time that was happening, you know, but and it disappeared, you know, from public awareness within days. People just really weren't interested in it. Um, but at the same time as happened, they were they were obsessed with the Ruth Snyder Judd Gray case, you know, the so-called double indemnity murder, where mm-hmm. this housewife Ruth Snyder, along with her kind of milk toast lover boy, you know, conspired to murder Ruth's husband. And that, you know, that obsessed the public for months and months and months. You know, this guy blows up a school and kills 38 children, and the American public at the time shrugs it off. You know, the case with this woman, you know, who conspired with her, you know, adulterous lover to murder her husband, you know, becomes front page news for months. And yeah. it's because, you know, she embodied something, you know, that that the public was, you know, very, very terrified at the moment. You know, she was this flapper, this 1920 flapper you know, who is flaunting her sexual freedom. It's know, another so. moral panic. It's juicy. Exactly. It's juicy. It's got, it's got, it, yeah. But she represented, you know, a threat to the whole Victorian domestic order, you know, that was being completely overthrown, you know, during the jazz age. You know, she came to embody that. You know, to some extent, the Leopold and Loeb also, you know, embodied the what they called the flaming youth of the time. You know, it wasn't that their crimes were so horrific. I mean, you know, she killed one person. Kehoe murdered 38 children. You know, she she murdered, you know, this kind of bullying husband that she really had no relationship with. So it wasn't the horrificness of the crime. It's what she represented. So my point is, you know, you can learn, you know, you can learn, you, you learn as much about the 60s counterculture, you know, from looking at the Manson case, you know, as you can from looking at Woodstock. Yeah, so, very interesting. No, I'm just saying there's a sociological dimension to it, you know, as Marcus was saying. There's, it's the shadow. It's the understanding yeah. the shadow of a time period. I think exactly. that there, and it's what's in the shadow. I, I am in Jungian therapy. So the shadow is a lot longer than you think it is, right? The shadow actually encompasses quite a lot. Yes, and Jung says the meeting with yourself is at first the meeting with your shadow. Yeah. Where you're in any kind of self-awareness, the first step is you have to be able to face your shadow. And of course, the shadow, you, you know, in my classes, I would always tell my students, because I taught this course called Myth and Archetype for many years, you know, and I'd say, whatever is the most shameful, guilt-ridden thing you can say about yourself, you know, something you would never reveal even to your most intimate friend is not the shadow. The shadow is something that is so abhorrent, you know, to everything you, you know, consciously think and all the values you hold that you can't even admit it's part of yourself. And, you know, that, again, is something you confront, uh, but it's necessary to confront that. And true crime, you know, is one of the ways that, you know, helps people come face to face with it, even though they they don't, again, you, you know, not consciously, you know, consciously acknowledging that again, they're dreaming those things that these wicked men are really doing. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Also, we're kind of hitting it now too, because you know we cover 
what we call our, our terms of heavy hitters, like these kind of fascinating serial killer figures that we we want to investigate. And we're discovering we're, because of the years we've been doing this, I feel like there are some crimes like the, the Bath School Massacre that are so bad. Mm-hmm. No one wants to get into it. Like we're starting to come up against, well, like the guys that are kind of left that we're starting to kind of cover each one's worse than the last one. Yeah. You know, like we're having a hard time finding a proper source for the toolbox killers. Mm. Right. Mm. And then Mm -hmm. it's because as soon as you look into it, you're like, Oh, this is pretty unpleasant. (laughs) I can see why there's not a lot of focus on this story. Yeah, there was right. someone that you covered in uh, in the book, uh, Gary Heineck. Is that yeah. Gary Heineck? Yeah, uh, yeah, that was uh, I'd actually never heard about that story in in the full detail. And you know, it's about a, a man who, you know, kidnaps women and keeps them chained up in his basement. And he, right. one of them dies, and he grinds her up into meat and feeds the remains to other women. I'd never not, heard of that. not cool. Heineck <laughs> so, had one of my two favorite defenses of any criminal. Heidnick's defense, as you say, he uh, lured these young, these women uh, into his home and chained them in the basement and tortured them in various ways. His defense when he was arrested was the women were there when he moved in. <laughs> I, you know, they, honestly, I was trying to get him to leave. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't want to go. I... <laughs> second favorite defense of all time was uh, a, a few years ago, probably a decade or so ago, um, a woman, I think it was in Miami or somewhere in Florida, a woman collapsed on the street and this homeless guy immediately started sexually assaulting her. And his defense was, I thought she was dead. <laughs> what are you going to do, officer? Yeah. Honestly, what did we get? And they're all like, we gotta let him, we have to let him go. We have to let him go. <laughs> I thought she was dead. <laughs> God, it takes a, it takes a, every kind. Yeah. Uh, well, we just did a last week. We just did a, a full series on necrophiliacs. Uh, oh. We went real deep Hard in the world ne- of necrophilia. Yeah, we went. Oh, we went to all ten subdivisions of necrophiliacs. But there's something about that type of crime that's also very interesting because unless it's tacked on to some other serious crime, like even uh-huh. other like serial murder, you don't hear a heck of a lot about it because it seems it's pretty gross. Yeah. Well, also, yeah, and necrophilia. I mean, there aren't really laws against it. I mean, there are laws against violating graves and so on and so forth. I'm not sure that there. Are, Specific for I found 40 states have laws on the books about necrophilia, but there's no federal statute for it. I think um, it's why droves of people are moving to Arkansas. <laughs> and corrected. Um, <laughs> wasn't on the books in California until 2004. Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, I know I've done some research into it. I mean, it was just rereading stuff about Sergeant Bertrand, who I'm sure you covered. We absolutely yeah. did. So uh, I believe that was a case where somebody first coined the term necrophilia. Yep. Um, so, yeah. Dude, Again, you should do that book. <laughs> you should do that book. Yeah, bro. You should You should do that do book. Do that book. <laughs> Honestly, I would, fu- I would love it. Like, can I just ask you to do various topics so that I can read yeah. more about them? You know, there is a very good book on Bertrand, um, but it's in French. Ah. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I can't read European. 
So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that this is a question that we had on the show that maybe you can weigh in on is that when we were putting together the story of necrophilia uh, and putting together like a kind of a murderer's row of necrophiliacs, the majority of them were French. Why? <laughs> um, well, you know, I mean, you know how the French feel about having sex with women. They're um, very liberal. Part of the, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I can only assume that it is part of the French attitude toward l'amour. You know, <laughs> like, um, I know Pepe Le Pew was canceled recently. Honestly, <laughs> finally. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that had anything to do with that. But yes, I, I can't, uh, you know, it does. You speak. heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Harold Schechter says Pepe Le Pew is a necrophilia. <laughs> I, I wouldn't put it past him. I wasn't totally sure why he was canceled. I'm just throwing that out there. He's a touchy. He's a touchy. He touches too much. Yeah. Well, I mean. Man, this has been so great. This has Dude, been so much fun. This is so fucking great. Thank you so much for talking to us for so long. Do you want yeah. to talk about? I mean, I know that you're right. You're working on another book right now, or you just finished it. You said Fifty States of Murder. Fifty States of Murder. So it's a book about um, uh, what I tried to do in it was, uh, you know, I, there's very little about all the most notorious cases that are associated with certain states. You know, there's, I mean, because, you know, who needs to read more about Charles Manson or Jeffrey Dahmer or even Keane? So what I tried to do was write about crimes that are very, very notorious within each state, but are largely unknown to the rest of us. You know, crimes that have entered into the annals, criminal annals of the state, gone into the criminal law of the state. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there are over 250 cases I cover. Um, you know, and most of them were new to me and many of them are very, very fascinating. Not sure exactly what the, I just handed the book in, not sure exactly. I'm thinking maybe it'll be out in 2025, but, That's but awesome. um, I'm very, very proud of Murder Belia and I'm really glad you guys liked it. I love it. Really glad you guys invited me to be on the show. It's always a great pleasure to talk to you guys. You're the best. You're so good. Looking forward to the book. I'm looking forward to your book on necrophilia. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm looking well, you know, forward actually, to say that I, uh, Eric Powell and I were actually thinking about doing a book on that subject, connecting it to Ed Dean. Um, I'm not sure that that project is still a go. We're not working on something else, but we did actually talk, um, about necrophilia. Do you, you must know the case of, um, uh, Count von Kosel. Tans yes, Carl yeah. Tanzler that we yeah. They had, yeah. So that's we another like, talk about built for a comic book too. Yeah, that's great for a comic book. Very visual. So yeah, so Eric and I were batting that idea around. You know, I don't know if something will come of it or not. But I'd love to see you guys collaborate again. Like, did you hear what Eddie Gein done? Was my favorite graphic novel of the year. So it's good. So good. So yeah, I'd love for you guys to. I vote yes. Over here, Carl Tanzler. Carl <laughs> Tanzler, everyone's favorite romantic. Uh, Marcus, just your favorite graphic novel of the year. <laughs> <laughs> okay, of all time. See, so good. Shame him. Um, thank you, Mister Schechter, for your wisdom and your time. Thank you very much. Live from your grave.
What a fascinating interview. Always a fascinating time with our good friend, Harold Schechter. We want to thank him so much for coming on to the show and gracing us with his presence. Uh, Once again, he's always a a treasure guest and a... uh, uh, a treasured part of the cr- true crime community. He's wonderful. So check out his new book, Murderabilia, and check us out on twitch.tv slash LPNTV. Mm-hmm. Come into We're going to be, obviously, we're off this week, but we're going to be rolling back with new stuff and then a bunch of new shows in January, which I'm really excited for. Mm-hmm. And uh, check out then Operation Sunshine uh, number two. It is out in stores yes, right so now. Yes, so get that in your local comic book store. We're going to Australia and New Zealand. Go check out our tour tickets at lastpodcastlive.com. It's going to be great. Can't wait. And uh, hail sweet Satan. On hail king. Why don't you? Hail me, you turkeys. <laughs> you all you a bunch see, of turkeys. You greasy turkeys. You stuffins. Mm, <laughs> you stuffins. What's wrong with the stuffins? You like it. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. I was shocked, you know? They were always such a good team. So successful. But to do something like that? To exceed their budget? While being over budget might not be a crime, it can disrupt workflows. With Monday.com, you and the team can be sure that you're all in sync. All the data, latest updates, files, and budgets are visible to everyone, so you won't miss a thing. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.